girls are, are just naturally kind of when they're young, a little bit bigger than boys, okay? And she was the older one. And so growing up, I really was. I was kind of terrorized by her. I was, I was kind of her slave. She owned me. And as we kind of got a little bit older, um, I, I, I understood something about myself, which is she might be stronger than me, but I'm more evil than she is. <laughs> and I can use this to my advantage. So I, I made up this rule, and I, I mean, very vividly, she would know this if you just started, she'd finish the sentence. And the rule was this. If you hit me, I will hit you back harder. And we can continue until you will no longer want to continue this game. She could hit me. She could hit me pretty hard. But there would come a time very quickly where she's like, no, I can't hit him that hard because he's going to get hurt. But I was willing to toe that line, okay? <laughs> and I thought I was a genius for coming up with this, this kind of rule. This was my kind of way of um, getting back at my sister. And then I was reading um, this week in Genesis 4, and I realized that that's actually very ancient logic. We'll see this morning uh, a man named Lamech, okay? He's the first to kind of come up with this. You hit me, I'll hit you back harder, and we'll see how far you want to go with this until we want to do it. We're starting a new sermon series called Stories of Old. Uh, Christian Reflections on Ancient Tales. And so um, what we're going to be doing is looking at a few very key fundamental stories at the very beginning of the Bible uh, and seeing what they mean for you and I as people who follow and worship Christ, kind of reflecting on the truths that they can teach us. Um, Genesis contains um, two kind of parts. You've got Genesis 1 through 11 and then Genesis 12 through 50. And Genesis 1 through 11 is focused on God and the world. It's kind of big picture. It's this big frame. Um, so it starts off with creation, and then it tells these stories that are universal in scope, the flood that affects everybody. And then in Genesis 12, God zeroes in on a man named Abraham, and the rest of Genesis, in fact, the rest of the Bible, is all about God and Israel. It kind of zeroes in. Um, and the reason for this, we'll see this as we walk through, is that Israel is kind of God's chosen way of helping the world. It's God's chosen way of bringing redemption and salvation to what's gone wrong with the world. You have these kind of foundational stories in Genesis 1 through 11. We'll be in four this morning, um, and I think there's lots of ways that sometimes we take these stories and we kind of exile them to Sunday school with the little children, okay? And so the only time we talk about the flood is when you're teaching it to little kids, and we leave out the nasty stuff about the drowning and all that kind of stuff, right? And rainbows, happiness, animals, right? Um, I mean, it's kind of a terrible story if you really read it, um, but we're going to take some time and reflect on those kind of stories. I think they do have some really deep, powerful truths to teach us. Uh, as people who follow Christ and as people who uh, desire to worship him and walk after him faithfully. Um, what you'll find in Genesis 1 through 11, what we'll do, it's a four-week series, okay? And we'll just look at four stories. There are four big stories here. Um, in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates. And he creates his world, and it's a good world. It works just the way he wants it to work. He says over and over again, it's good, it's good, it's good. We're familiar probably with Genesis 3, which is the fall. Our first parents, the first human beings, Adam and Eve, they eat from the tree they're not supposed to, and sin and death enters into the world. And then from Genesis 4 through 11, you have three stories. And each story is an example of how sin and death have kind of started to spiral out of control. And they serve as explanations for why it is we live in the world that we live in. Why it is we can turn on CNN and see the things that we can see on CNN. Why it is we can read the headlines in our email, right, and see the kind of things people are getting arrested for and prosecuted for and those kind of things. Genesis says, this explains that. This is where all of this started from. Um, and, and so these stories are going to show us kind of the spiral of sin and death. It starts to kind of spiral out of control. Think of like a slinky, okay, on a staircase. And the slinky goes down and down. With each story, you see how God's good world is further distorted 
and further distorted and further distorted. And so finally, in Genesis 12, God says, I've had enough. Here's my plan. Here's how we're going to fix this. So we start off in Genesis 4, okay? This is the first spiral. This is the first kind of slinky step um, as we look at how sin and death are going to kind of wreak havoc on the world. Um, it's a very interesting story. You may be familiar with it. You may not be. We'll read it together. Uh, Genesis 4, we'll pick it up in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel, Cain and Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the first fruits of the ground. And Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was angry, very angry. His face <coughs> fell. If you, uh, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you, but you must rule over it. So you have Adam and Eve. They have two children, Cain and Abel, brothers. Um, Cain is a uh, farmer, and Abel works with animals, and they bring an offering to the Lord. Okay, And for whatever reason... Abel's offering is looked upon with more favor by God than Cain's. And this makes Cain angry. He's jealous. He's jealous of his sibling. Um, he's jealous of the response from God that Abel got. Now, people have wondered what is the difference between these offerings, right? Why does God accept one, not the other? Various answers have been given. Probably the most classic is God desires um, the blood more than he desires the, the kind of grain. Um, I think that's kind of a weak answer. Um, it's definitely not here in Genesis 4. In, in Genesis 1 and 2, working the soil is a good thing. I mean, it's one of these jobs God gives. Later on in the scriptures, grain offerings are perfectly acceptable to God, right? So, so I think there has to be something else happening. I don't think this is an example of God being the first, like, non-GMO protester, okay? <laughs> Stay away from wheat! It's all about the animals, all right? Um, in the New Testament, it will say that Abel had faith and Cain did not. It seems like there's a character difference in the way that these offerings were brought. And we'll see Cain's character come out really quickly, okay? So Cain gets angry uh, because God has not seen his sacrifice in the same light. Um, but that doesn't seem to be the real problem, okay? In fact, God doesn't even really seem to have that big of a problem with Cain's sacrifice. It's his anger and then the potential that can come out of this anger that God talks to Cain about. He says, look, I see that you're angry. I see that your face has fallen. You need to be careful here. It's a sin. It's crouching. It wants you. And you've got to master it. And we keep reading. Verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, and that word field in Hebrew has this really like negative connotation. Like, let's go to the forest, right? Let's go to the woods where no one can hear you. When they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? It's a pretty common phrase. I think this kind of come through. You've probably heard this before from the story. Am I my brother's keeper? Let me answer the question for you. Yes. Yes, Cain was his brother's keeper. And yes, you are your brother's keepers. Okay, you can look around you in the room. Yes, this is God's plan from day one for us to take care of each other. For us to keep each other alive and intact and healthy and happy and satisfied. For us to sacrifice for each other. Um, this, this question came, am I my brother's keeper? I can only imagine what the Lord is thinking here. Um, the answer is a resounding yes. The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth 
to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. I will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Okay, so you have the first murder here. And this is very characteristic of Hebrew narrative, the Old Testament narrative. It's very short and terse, okay? So if you had a brother killing another brother in like a Western modern novel, that's going to be a good 400 pages, right? There's going to be character development and setup, and the scenes are going to be descriptively painted for you. In Hebrew, this is real common. You just kind of get a, and he killed him. And I think that this is one of the reasons sometimes maybe we read the Old Testament and go, this is kind of boring. And you go, well, it's a murder story. You're like, well, yeah, I guess it is a murder story, but it's not the kind of murder story that we would be familiar with. You have to kind of put yourself in the story and kind of force yourself to experience it and feel it and look around inside of it. Cain takes his brother to a field and kills him, the first murder. Um, not just a homicide, but a fratricide. He kills his brother. He kills his very own flesh. What started with eating from a tree in one generation has turned into murder. And the blood of a human being is on a ground, and you have the murderer trying to get away with it, trying to, to act ignorant. My brother's keeper, I don't know what's happened to him. You know, what's, you know what's happened to him. Homicide, violence. Um, God's response, I think, is surprising. So God doesn't seem interested in repaying Cain. Right? God doesn't seem interested in killing Cain. In fact, Cain is not fearful of God. He's fearful of other people. Right? He says, other people are going to kill me because of this. There's an interesting question, who are these other people? We've not been told yet that there are other people in the book of Genesis, but apparently they are. And apparently, um, instinctively, they're going to want to punish Cain for what he's done. Um, and God's reaction is not to be like, that's good, I want to kill you too, here we go. God says, I'll protect you. God's one of God's first responses to sin in the biblical story is to protect a murderer. Because God doesn't like violence. He doesn't like murder. When it happens, God doesn't say, let me put more of it in my world. He says, how can we stop this? This needs to stop. This is not what I wanted for my creation. This is not what I wanted for my world. I definitely don't want to just increase it by killing you. And so God offers to protect him. He gives him a mark. That will protect him, keep him from being killed by other people. People, again, have wondered, what is this mark? Uh, most people would think it has something to do with some kind of mark on his forehead that told other people not to kill him. We don't know, right? I mean, it's all conjecture. Um, I can tell you what it's not, okay? So in the history of bad interpretation, uh, you'll find people saying that this mark was black skin. And Cain is the first black person. So we can all collectively agree this morning that that is incorrect, that is a bad way of reading the text. Cain is not the first black person. This is not a good thing to do to a race of human beings is to associate them with the first murderer. Okay, um, We need to repent of that and get over that. If anything, Cain is the first white person. Okay, He's the first American right here. Um, Cain's... Happy Memorial Day. Uh, Cain is, not, Cain is not the first black person. He has this mark. We don't know what the mark is, but it protects him. God desires to protect him. It's very interesting. And then Cain leaves. He, he becomes this murderous wanderer, and he lives east of Eden. 
His murder, his violence, his anger takes him away from God's paradise, from God's life, from the joy and peace that he would experience in the sight of God. And he lives his life as a wanderer, restless, east of Eden. In fact, I think to this day, you and I still live east of Eden. That's why we see those headlines. That's why we we hear those news stories. Because we live in a world... um, East of Eden, a world where blood is on the ground crying out. We keep reading in verse 17, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. Lamech is an important character here. Lamech took two wives. He's the first polygamous man in the scriptures. One was Adah, and the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, and the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal Cain was Namah. So you see culture here develop, right? Civilization. A city is built. Um, they develop um, tents to live in. They develop ways to deal with livestock. They develop music. Culture is being produced. They develop instruments and technology, bronze and iron. The world is kind of advancing. But through all of it is this thread of violence that you find east of Eden, like in the Wild West. All of this is being built up on the first kind of murder that Cain had. And it culminates in Cain's great-great-great-great-great-grandson, Lamech, who's a very important character I think sometimes we overlook. Lamech um, sings this song to his wife. It's a poem. It should be marked out in poetic brackets in your Bible. Should be indented. He says this Adon Zalai is bragging to his woman, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. Probably not a good way to talk to your wife. Hey, you wife of me, listen to what I'd say. Um, but he, he, he sings this I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. He sings a song bragging about his vengeance. And then he says, If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. He overreacts here. He, he, he kind of brags about how much vengeance he'll bring to someone who wrongs him. He says, my, my lineage is famous for the first murder, and I'm even more famous for the violence that I'll give anyone who messes with me. If you mess with Cain, seven times came back to you. If you mess with me, 70 times seven will come back to you. This is the song of Lamech. Not only do I think we live in Cain's world, east of Eden, I think also... We're still captivated by the song of Lamech. In fact, my, when I was a little kid, right? That's what I was singing. If you hit me, I'll hit you back harder. That's, that's Lamech right here. At kind of the core of humanity. How will I protect myself? How will I protect others? If you come after us, we will come after you harder until you no longer want to do that anymore. We live east of Eden, and and too often we sing still the song of Lamech. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For She said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I think there are three things that we can learn as people who worship and follow Christ from this story. Okay, So number one, I think Genesis 4 teaches us, it exposes us, the true nature of sin. Um, in fact, in Genesis 4, is the first time in the entire Bible that sin is actually named, like explicitly named as sin. And it's by God. It's from the, the speech of God. 
God himself names sin to Cain. But it's not what you'd expect if you go to 4-7, um, chapter 4, verse 7. Cain's angry. He hasn't done anything um, theoretically wrong at this point. I mean, the offering was, was not as good as maybe Abel's was, but it doesn't seem like he did something necessarily wrong. Um, it's the potential from his anger that's, that's scary here. And then in verse 6 and 7, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And watch this. If you do not do well, sin. It's the first time you see that word. Now, you kind of see the principle of sin in Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, but it's not named as sin. This is the first time. Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. A couple things to notice here. One is that God does not name sin to condemn and punish Cain. Sin is not something that God uses to bully people or that God uses to dislike people. Sin is not something that God holds over people's heads. In fact, God names sin in order to what? Caution and warn Cain, to give him advice. And the first time you see sin here, it's personified, which means it's spoken of as a person, as a, as a, a character, a creature able of acting, this kind of evil personal force. He says sin is crouching at your door. The image here is of a, like a lion, a dangerous animal that's ready to pounce on you. And it says its desire is for you. It's sniffing you out. It's stalking you. And it wants to master you. Sin is seen as this this personal evil force who wants to drive you east of Eden. Who wants to take you away from the life that God has intended for you. And, And God says, please, you've got to master this. You've got to rule this. You've got to be aware of this. Now I think that this picture, this, this kind of understanding of sin should be our primary way of thinking about sin, okay? The way we, we think and the way we use words often affects how we experience certain things. Um, and I think that we often think of sin just as a breaking of the rules. Um, sin is, is going against the law, okay? And even worse than that, sometimes we just start to think of sin as breaking like arbitrary rules, um, like the speed limit, right? You know it's a rule. You know you're not supposed to do it. You break it. If you get caught, you'll feel bad about it. But there's no inherent reason, right, for you to not speed other than somebody you don't know and don't care about told you that was the speed limit. That's the number. Not one mile per hour over that. That's the number. That's how fast you can go on the freeway. Sometimes we live life, and, and, and that's kind of the view of sin we have. We don't understand. It doesn't make sense to us. I don't know why I'm not supposed to do that. If I was making the rules, I'd be able to do that. Seems like I'll have a lot more fun doing that. It's impersonal. It's arbitrary. Doesn't make much sense. But the scriptures, not just in Genesis here, but throughout, will portray sin as this personal force. Paul does this all the time. He personifies sin. He says, in fact, the world that we live in is a world that's enslaved by sin. Slave, um, sin has gone past this crouching and has pounced and has got us completely in its grasp. And what sin does and wants to do is not. Um, you know, take our smile off our face, but, but it wants to, to drive us from the presence of God, to drive us from where true life and true peace and true happiness would be found. This is why the Hebrews um, would rejoice when God gives them instructions. Um, the law, Torah. In Psalm 119, the, they have this real long love poem about the law. And to us, again, that seems odd, right? That seems like celebrating that we have a speed limit. But if we understand sin as this force that desires to destroy us and take away our life, then we can understand why they would be so happy when God gives them tips on how to conquer sin, 
how to avoid it, how to stay away from it, how to keep it from pouncing on them. This is why Christians as well, um, we're told in Colossians 3, put sin to death, to fight it to the death. It's not something to be played with. It's not something to be toyed around with. Um, Sin is not uh, an arbitrary rule. It's a force that desires to take away God's good gift in your life. And sometimes we can get deceived and we can think that, just like Adam and Eve thought, um, God actually is withholding something good from us. It's deceptful. And sin is powerful. It wants to master you, God says here. Sin is often, I think, a lot more powerful than we think it is. So if we think of sin as a, a force, a personal force, with bad intentions for our lives, then this has to, this has to play into how we think of our temptations and struggles with certain sins, right? And so when I break the speed limit, I mean, if I break the speed limit... It's a one-time deal, right? I mean, that, that's not coming back to haunt me. That's not having a big impact on my life, okay? That's not, I mean, it's, not, it's just not this very impactful thing in my life. The speed limit has no bad intentions for my life. It's not coming after me. It's not saying, aha, I got you to break me, and so here, now we can really go over here. Um, sin, though, however, does work that way. Sin um, will take you farther than you wanted to go. Sin will enslave you. Sin will trap you. Sin will confuse you and deceive you. I don't know if you've ever seen or, or, or been in a conversation with or maybe just seen on like a TV or reality TV show someone trapped in like the depths of addiction and how confused they are about the world and how unable they are to figure out what's good for them versus what's bad for them, what's killing them. I mean, I, I think sin is a lot more like being addicted to, to meth than it is to breaking a, a speed limit. Or stealing something from a candy store. It's something you do that hurts you. And it's going to inherently keep you hurting yourself. And you get stuck in this cycle. That's why Christians don't play around with sin. That's why we're told to put it to death. This is why we're told this is not something that, to just to, to toy with. This is, this is something very serious. This is something that we're freed from. This is something we need to walk away from. Um, I don't know if you've ever had that experience in your life. I know that I have where you sit down and you go, how did I get this far? Right? I never thought I could do that kind of thing. I never thought I could actually participate in that sort of situation. When all this started, I was just doing this. But it's progressed and it's progressed and it's progressed. Genesis 4 reveals, exposes the true nature of of sin. Sin, um, while we might be done with it, it's never done with us. It follows us, it stalks us, it pounces us. And God's desire for Cain and for all creation is for us to have victory and freedom, to understand it rightly, experience it fearfully, and fight it correctly. Um, the second thing that Genesis 4, this text, teaches us, I think, um, that we can kind of draw from it is, is Genesis 4 is a great explanation of the course of human history and the human experience today. Um, Genesis 4 is this great way of saying, this is why that. This is why that. You have this um, um, first act of murder. It leads into more and more violence and vengeance. Um, and to understand this, you've got to understand that, that violence is cyclical. Okay, Inherently, violence is cyclical. Um, if you've ever heard of the cycle of violence. If Michelle is just standing in front of me, Um, and does nothing. We never have any interaction or contact. If I'm a normal human being, I have no reason to hurt her, okay? 
and it probably won't come to my mind. Hey, I should kick her in the throat. There's just, there's no, there's been no interaction. She's just, she's completely separate from me, right? Um, violence gets activated in normal people. Again, there's some people who maybe just are off in the mind to begin with. When I'm violated, so Michelle does something mean to me, and then I want to do something mean back to her, and a cycle begins. Do you see how that works? I get punched in the face, and then I punch somebody back, and the cycle continues. And often the cycle intensifies. That's how it works. It starts with words, then it moves on to um, threats, and then it moves on to punches, and then it moves on to guns, and then it moves on to bombs. This is the story of human history, is the cycle of violence. And it starts with our older brother Cain, who kills Abel. And Lamech is this perfect example of how it intensifies and keeps going until it spirals out of control. Um, this, is, this is human history. This is why we live in the world that we live in right now. God wants it stopped. He wants it curbed. Um, but it has seemingly mastered us. It runs through everything. It runs through our civilization, our culture. It runs through our government. Human beings inherently know that we're social creatures, but we're guilty. And we're insecure. We know that we've done wrong to others, and that means they might want to do wrong back to us. And they might take advantage of that. And in reality, and I think you see this presented here in Genesis 4, civilization builds off of Cain's murder. It builds off of Abel's blood here. Um, society, a secure society, runs off of fear. Off of fear of revenge. Uh, fear of insecurity, right? We gather together for a few reasons. Same location, that kind of thing. Um, and we say, let's get along so that we can keep these people from hurting us. Because we have this intrinsic knowledge that they might want to hurt us. And so let's do our best to get along, to put our resources and money together so that we can keep them from hurting us. And if they do hurt us, we can hurt them worse. I mean, this is the, the, the key to keep in mind, I think, with all kind of geo-global politics. Um, nothing ever started in this generation, Right? Like with America, with the conflict in the Middle East, all of those kind of things. This all goes back generation after generation after generation after generation. None of these things are new. Um, no one woke up one day and said, hey, I want to hate this group of people. Hey, I want to go bomb this group of people. No, there are slights and histories behind all of them. And it's this long cycle. Um, one country goes and bombs this other country, and their children grow up without parents and without money in a crippled economy. And then when they're in power, they want to go bomb that country again. And it goes back and forth, and some powers stay in control for longer, but the power shifts back and forth. This is human history. I mean, this is a history book right here. This is our human experience. You've wronged us, and we have to wrong you back. And we're afraid that you are going to wrong us, and so we'll keep attacking you. And we'll escalate the violence until we're no longer afraid that you can or will attack us. We live in Cain's world. We are east of Eden. And we sing Lamech's song, which is if you hit us, we're going to hit you back harder. We didn't start the fire. It was always burning since the world was turning. But we kept it going. It's the world we live in. The third thing Genesis 4 can do for us as Christ followers I've got that whole song memorized, in case you were wondering. Uh, <laughs> is that Genesis 4 points us to the work and to the call of Christ. 
that points us to the work and to the call of Christ. Um, what Jesus does when he comes, when, when he's sent by the Father and, and is incarnate in a human body and lives and dies and resurrects, is he frees us from the land of Cain. He, he takes us from east of Eden and brings us back into God's presence, which we might call the kingdom of God. He brings back, makes available God's life and peace and joy and the spirit dwelling among us. And the way he does this, very interestingly enough, is by stepping into the cycle of violence and stopping it. So here's how the cycle works. The only way for it to ever be stopped is for one person to not retaliate, to absorb it. Violence can't be explained away. It can't be rationalized away. It's too elemental for that. Um, sociologists have long known this. Right? You don't bring peace by theorizing about it. Um, the one way you can bring peace, though, is by somebody not punching back. Civil rights movements, they catch on to this fast. Right? Some of our greatest movements in history, uh, think of Martin Luther King Jr. Right? Um, you can hit us, but we're not going to hit you back. The violence will stop inside of us, with us, in us. This is what you see happening with Jesus. He comes to creation, God in the flesh, and says, all of your violence, put it on me, and it will stay here. I will not bring it back on you. I'll return your evil with forgiveness. And at that moment, something huge happens in the world. A cycle stopped. Freedom's available. And all of a sudden, people are invited out of East of Eden, back to God's presence. God in the flesh, absorbing evil, not returning it on his creation, forgiving us instead of letting our iniquities continue to increase. Jesus comes to free us from the land of Cain. And not only that, um, but he comes to call us to sing a different song from Lamech. Um, he wants to replace our imaginations. Um, instead of the song of Lamech, he wants us to sing, we can call it the song of the Lamb. Okay, you can find this, um, if you would, flip with me to Matthew 28, or Matthew 18, excuse me. In Matthew 18, you have a, a really interesting allusion um, from Jesus to Lamech and to Lamech's song. That sometimes I don't think we make the connection to, but it's, it's a pretty clear connection. In Matthew 18, uh, we'll pick it up in verse 20, 18, 20 to 21. I'm sorry, 21 to 22. Um, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Um, this is a very interesting question for lots of reasons in response. Um, Peter is asking, look, if I'm getting sinned against, how many times do I have to put up with it? How many times do I have to forgive them? And he offers seven times, which is interesting for two reasons. One is, for first century Jews, this was pretty generous, seven times. The rabbis would, would generally tell you three times. So this is already a step up. Um, the second reason that's kind of significant is because Peter himself is not the most forgiving people, right? If you know about Peter, Peter goes into a city, they don't like him. He walks out and goes, can we bring on fire on these people? I mean, he's not, he is probably trying to impress Jesus here, right? Hey, should I forgive them seven times, Jesus? You like me, huh? Yeah? This is kind of Peter, right? Um, and again, Peter gets shot down like he always gets shot down. He just can never do anything right. Um, it's also likely Peter is reversing Cain's mark, Cain's vengeance. Just like Cain would be revenged seven times, so should we as kingdom people forgive seven times? Should that original evil be reversed in our lives? 
And Jesus intensifies. He takes the step up and he says, not seven, but 70 times seven. He takes Lamech's phrasing, Lamech's boasting. He says, no, this is actually the call for my people. This is what life looks like inside of Eden, not kicked out. Unlimited forgiveness, 70 times 7. The point is not to calculate this out 490, right? These are very symbolic numbers. It's, it's limitless. It's endless. Just as the world is characterized by unlimited vengeance, so Christians should be characterized by unlimited forgiveness. And just as the, the seeking and desire for vengeance pushes people away, so our ability to forgive and love should attract, should be characteristic of our community, of who we are. The song of Lamech is replaced by the song of the Lamb in our lives. This is the call for people who follow Christ. In Luke 6, verse 27 to 29, Jesus will say, I tell you, love your enemies, do good, lend to those who ask, expecting nothing in return. If someone strikes you on the cheek, do not hit them back, offer the other cheek as well. It's this completely new way of living where we join Jesus in stopping the cycle of violence and evil. And this is throughout the New Testament. Paul in Romans 12 will say, if someone gives you evil, don't pay them back with evil. That's this old world. That's why we're in this mess to begin with. We've been freed from that. We've been taken out of that. He says, pay back the evil with good. The vengeance to God, it's not yours to touch with. You shouldn't play with it. Christ has come to redeem us and to free us, and, and you and I are called to walk in this path of peace. Genesis 4 is this, this text, I think, that as Christians has to kind of point us to what Christ has accomplished, how he was the final sacrifice, how he has called us to live lives not of vengeance, but of forgiveness and of love. Cain and Abel, Lamech, I think the story is a powerful story that exposes the nature of sin. It, it kind of portrays the course of human history, our experience of humanity right now, and it points us to Christ, to his work on our behalf, to the call he has on our lives. This morning, um, let us repent of, of any sin that we're walking in. Let us, let us stop pretending it is um, weak and impotent. Um, let us see it for what it is. Um, let us understand it for what it is. And let us rejoice in, in what Christ has done for us, in the forgiveness that he's given us, and the freedom that he offers us. And let us commit ourselves anew to following in his pattern of being people who are more like Christ than Lamech, of being people who are known more for their forgiveness and their love than they are for their hatred and anger and, and ability to revenge. This morning, we're invited out of our ghetto, east of Eden, and we're invited to find Christ at the table. Would you pray with us?